Hello everyone, you are most welcome to episode 163 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop gaming. My name is Ronan and this is not the episode you're expecting because apologies all around to everyone. I've told fibs. Okay, firstly, apologies. I am on my headset microphone again. Building season in leafy London continues and there are circular saws everywhere I look. So I'm back on the headphones to reduce background noise, although the quality is a little bit down. Hopefully, they tell me there's about four weeks of building works left in that next door. Hopefully, we'll be back on the normal mic soon. Okay, what's the second thing? It's just me talking. Last time, I promised you this episode would be a review of 2020 with Sean and Matthew. I told you it was in the can. I told you it was ready to go. It almost was in the can. Sean's is in the can. Matthew's is in the can. Mine. <laughs> this, is, this has happened twice in about three years. And in both times, it's been these end of year episodes that we've recorded with Matthew. But my file, my one third of the recording, I stopped. I saved, I looked in my documents where I put my saved recordings, it says two hours and 20 minutes of recording, perfect, that's how long we recorded for, I got Sean's file from him, I got Matthew's file from him, went to open mine, two hours, 20 minutes, yeah, great, I opened it, 90 seconds long, I don't know, I, I don't, why did my computer lie to me, why didn't it save more than that, I don't know, so we've lost that episode, and uh, Sean's currently... On the uh, on the Welsh marches out there on holiday, I've got a couple of little weeks away within uh, within England coming up where we're friends and stuff, and we have not got back together because we have to re-record the whole thing because. I mean, I'm sure you appreciate me trying to fit back in all the nonsense I've spewed while those guys and we're bouncing off each other and all the rest of it is not going to work. So Matthew's super busy with a lot of media content was way bigger than the game pit. So we are trying to find another slot in which three of us can get together and re-record. It's definitely not going to be for a little while. Might be a good thing. I don't know. When we did record, all of us said there are games from last year we just haven't got around to play in. We've only just opened up playing with other people again. So... With some luck, uh, we're going to maybe have got a couple more games played. There might be a couple more contenders in our top 10s. We'll switch around as they are want to do. Okay, so that's apologies to you guys for the mic, for the content, for not being what I said. Apologies to Sean and Matthew for losing my file. And the last thing is, for this episode, I've, I've thrown something together quick to, to fill in the gap where when I realised I had, didn't have the footage. So I'm going to talk about a couple of newer games. There's a couple of games that I've played before that I'm just revisiting for whatever reason. And it was going to hinge around sort of the big review was going to be for Destinies, the Lucky Duck, the adventure game, which we've talked about loads because as you know I, I played the uh, the original scenario that's the number one scenario in the box but whether this is a surprise or not I don't know but I have got very conflicting feelings about Destinies at the moment so I didn't feel I'd played it enough to give you guys a decent review therefore I took it out and when I replaced it it's with a smaller game and now the whole thing looks like <laughs> they really have a big new sweet juicy review to hang this one around so it's going to be more an even quicker hit 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 through a few games a few replays a few revisits looking at expansion here and there and whatever so um it's me again i'm sorry now i can't promise this one but i can tell you that in a few days time sean and i 
are down to record an episode we're just going to chat about a couple of games sean's been playing we're going to do a top 10 i'm not even going to say any more than that because so many things we go wrong but hopefully you will hear sean on the next episode it won't just be me that's a really long intro i apologize i'm going to crack on i've got a bunch of games that i've been playing for you and then she's going to talk about some games that came into the collection and the first game i'm going to talk about is Detective City of Angels, a 2019 game, one to five players, 90 to 120 minutes. Evan Derrick, the designer from Van Ryder Games. Now, there's a lot of games called Detective. It gets very confusing. I know also as well as confusing that is Detective has a bunch of expansions to City of Angels, uh, Bullets Over Broadway and some other ones. And and it all gets, which is which? Well, Detective City of Angels is the base game for this system from Van Ryder Games. It is set in Los Angeles in the 1940s. There are a series of murders, but each murder is its own completely self-contained case. There may be slight thematic and story links through them, but there's no legacy element or anything like that. You can play them with different series of people. Although what you do get is three simpler cases, three medium cases, and three tougher cases within the box. So you can... I mean, listen, you could go straight into the medium cases, no problem at all, uh, especially with gamers. It's not that the mechanisms get tougher, it's just that the stories get a bit more complex. It might take slightly longer to play. Like the first game, it, it really, once you get the mechanisms down, it's like an hour long max. Um, as you get on and they get a bit longer, you're talking more up towards two hours to play. There are also, as well as being nine different cases in this base box, there are different modes of play. Now, the sort of default mode is that one player becomes the chisel, who is, in effect, the game's master. And then the other players play the role of detectives. And they're sort of slightly crooked detectives. And they're trying to beat each other to get and solve the case first. What they get is one guess during the course of the game they can take. And they choose when to take that beginning of one of their turns. Or everyone gets to guess at the end. And if no one ever gets it right, the chisel wins. I'm not really playing it like the chisel's trying to win. I'm trying to, because I've been the chisel every time is what I should say. I'm kind of trying to, you know, facilitate a fun game for everyone. But there you go. That's that's kind of the default way of playing it. There are other ways in which uh, I think the detectives can play as a team, basically co-op in it. I think that would make it a bit easy and you'd lose out on some of the, the uniqueness of the game. And there's other ways in which you can play without a chisel at all. And there's sort of a grid thing which points you to different answers and, and how to go through it all, which I don't know how that works. So I'm going to be to talk about the game from my point of view as the chisel and from the other players, what I've done is I've asked them questions about what they thought. So we're going to get some of their ideas as well. When I say the other players, I mean basically my family. Okay, cool. Anyway, as the chisel, there's a board of LA, which look lots of different locations on there. Most of them numbered. Some of them have got names. There's different regions of the city. And at the beginning of each game, I will have some characters which go on standees, which I've got places to put them in. I'll have some case cards which go across the top of the board and some of them are face up. That's how we sort of begin. That's beginning information you have at the beginning of the murder. So this person has turned up at a police station. They're covered in blood. They tell you that something has happened. Work it out from there. Also, there are some secret ones. There are characters that won't necessarily appear on the board, especially again as you go in. It becomes more complicated or some secrets that won't come into play at all and replace case cards until the detectives have discovered some stuff. And then there's sort of a setup scenario which there is online. It's professionally read out. Obviously, you can read it out yourself and you can go through and point things out as you're reading it and say, this is this, that's that, that's that home. That's number 77. That's the home of the victim and whatever. And, and set the scene up for the other players. 
on the detective's turn, so the chisel never has an actual turn. On the detective's turns, they get to take four actions each. They can move. There's a limited amount they can move for each move. But they can carry on moving across their go. They can search either people or locations, or they can ask questions of people who are at the same location as them. Now, the questioning is sort of like the, the only mechanism that really has a lot of meat to it. And in that case... They will choose a character to question. That's the character that's in play. The chisel has a book in front of them and they read the options of how they can answer. And then the chisel is deciding whether... if it, I mean, Sometimes you use only one answer. Sometimes you can give less helpful answers, let's say, than the main one. And then the character who gets the answer is trying to work out, well, is that the most useful answer or not? And they can sort of gamble with something which is called a leverage. And they can hand you a leverage to say, no, I don't think that's the, the most valuable answer you can give me and if it is the most valuable you then get leverage over that character so you can block them and slow them down in further questioning however if you have tried to sell them a dummy you must then give them the most useful answer and then they get leverage over that character not the chisel the chisel gets it over the detectives but the detectives get it over particular characters and then they can force those characters to give certain answers and while this is going on other players can use money and bribe snitches to listen in and try and get the answers to these questions so sometimes you might be selling a dummy and give them all false information or lead them down a certain way and how you do that is down to you how you want to play as a chisel and, and money, I mentioned money in the game there are as well as these four actions there are always extra actions you can take which all cost money but you can make money by like shaking down shady joints and stuff like that and it's just a sort of resource you need to keep an eye on as a detective to make sure probably that you want some at all times because other things are like you can go to a police station but because detectives when they're searching either a location or a person they can discover those case cards that you lay out at the top and it might be certain evidence and they might get to keep sometimes it says keep this one and for three days of the game time and the number of days in the game is dependent upon player count and no one else can see it but in fact they can pay a police station to have a look or they can give money directly to another detective and bribe them to have a look at what they're carrying around or what evidence they've got so there's this money sort of is the the grease in the wheels of the interaction where the players are learning off each other as well as observing each other all the time. But it is limited and it's something that they're going to have to decide how much of it they want at any time. I'm going to go switch across quickly to the feedback I got from my family. Basically, the detectives have been playing all the time. I've played with other players, but mostly been my family. And I am going to say what they have told me. So their feedback was from Detective City of Angels. They liked that the amount of information was not too much. So, for example, in Detective the Portal game or in Sherlock Holmes Consultant Detective, let's just all talk about all the games that got Detective in the title, shall we? Anyway, in those games, you're going to have to take notes. In this one, yes, you've got your own sheet and there's a grid where you write in your own answers to questions or what you think you've learned from other people. But the note taken is not extensive and it's not you're going back through reams and reams and there's not loads and loads of stuff to remember. Everything's quite quick and you are in a race to find things out rather than chasing down dead ends all the time. They said the early games were a bit too quick. Certainly the first game is just a tutorial. I probably wouldn't bother, unless they were someone that was very new to gaming, I probably wouldn't bother with that, certainly not with a group of gamers. They were talking about the chisel answers. They enjoyed the fact that what I was trying to do anyway, and again, it depends how you want to play as a chisel, is I was trying to role play as the character they were asking the question off. And I was trying to think, is this character starting to panic? Are they being obstructive? Are they like, no, I'm just going to be completely truthful. Have they got something to hide? And I think they quite liked, there was a bit of, a bit of banter backwards and forwards between us around that. 
they actually found some of the characters memorable, which I think is a very good thing in a, in a game like this, which is narrative driven. They still could talk about certain characters from, from certain cases and remember them, remember their motivations, even if they weren't the main protagonist or the murderer or whatever, which I think is pretty cool. They found the watching and the timing of when to intervene with each other interesting. The money system they didn't particularly love Perhaps instead of having to have a, a regular thing of moving, shaking down an area to get money, uh, and then shaking it down again at the start of the next turn in order to you had some money, maybe some sort of income would have been better. So they didn't have to actively chase money. It just came in, and then they were just choosing how to use it, which I thought was an interesting idea. They found that the cases, they kept progressing. So always it felt like they were moving on and getting closer and, and narrowing things down from this big wide city into where they should be and what they should be looking at. They didn't really often feel frustrated and also they felt the game rewarded common sense. So for example, I'm trying to think of an idea here uh, that hasn't come up yet. If they were told or there was a hint they might be looking for a librarian, they could look on the board, there's three libraries. If they went to a library, that librarian might not be there, but they would still find something out. So that person might say, oh, I, I do know. I used to work with them. I know that they live there. Or, oh, no, I don't think so. But have you checked that library? Or st- they're getting closer. So it's taken up some of their time, but they're not hitting their head against the wall at any point. The other thing they felt was the ability to sort of look at other people's information that they discovered and to snitch in on their, their questioning meant that, They didn't just feel like they were following around a person who had got ahead and having to do the same actions that that person had already done to find out their information that the other detective had already found out. And they didn't just feel like then it was like a a train of geese wandering around Los Angeles where they're all following one thread. You're like, oh, you found it out first. You're ahead of me. I can't catch up. There are ways in which they can get that information, which I think was interesting. Overall, the consensus was it was mechanically light. It was easy to pick up. It was a nice group or family game. And I know it's handwritten here. The chisel was really awesome and attractive, which is nice to hear. As the chisel, the amount of information was not overwhelming. I didn't feel like, like I've done a little bit of DMing for my family, Dungeon Mastering, and oh man, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I just try, because I feel like I have to know everything that's going on, every character they meet, and try and pull all the story together, and nowhere near that level. It's there, you can have a look at it, spend five or ten minutes, and then you're able to run the case. I've always felt like I was involved. Always felt like uh, on people's turns they were doing stuff and I was keeping an eye. And because they were constantly unveiling stuff, I was constantly interacting with them. And that question and answer is the really the heart of the whole case. So you're constantly involved because you're the one giving the answers. Like I say, I role play the characters. I found that to be fun. And I found like I had more fun in facilitating the game. So allegedly I can win. I haven't won yet. I'm quite happy about that because I don't want them to get frustrated. If they're going down the right path and they're putting the right squeeze on someone i'm not going to then suddenly stop throwing out leverage to prevent them from getting anywhere and slowing it right down i do do that a little bit so that it's part of the game but i I don't feel like i'm playing against the detectives i just feel like we're all playing together and having fun overall for detective city of angels it has got adult themes in it so it talks about drug use it talks about adult relationships obviously there's murder in it but there's other crimes as well and there's some psychological issues come into it and stuff like that so that's something to be aware of i wouldn't play it with younger kids it's obviously up to you at what age you think children can can be part of being a game that's got some of that stuff in but be aware of that other than that though mechanically i think when you start talking about sort of yeah, 11, 12 upwards, they're, they're going to be fine in terms of mechanically. 
not thematically, because it is quite light. It's a shared experience. It's very quick turns. To be honest, I was interested in Detective City of Angels, and I always thought about getting it, and I was always like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, because I felt from the descriptions I'd heard, and however I'd interpreted that, clearly I'd interpreted them wrong, because I thought it was going to be a heavier experience, and I thought that it was going to be a bit of a burden running it, and it was going to be more sort of a, a lifestyle game, but really it's not. Really, it's the sort of game we'll grab down on a Sunday afternoon after lunch and just get it on the table. Hour and a half later, we're done, and we've all had something to share and had a laugh. And I've put on some bad accents, and we've had a good crack. And that's the happy place for me with this game. Not nearly as heavy as I expected, but much smoother and quicker. And the development is always there. It always feels like we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. We have a resolution. So it's a hit. Detective City of Angels, and I think it's quite likely that one or two of those expansions might make their way into this household. Okay, I've got another sort of murder-solving game, but a pretty different one now. This is Micro Macro Crime City, a huge hit from last year. From 2020, one to four players, about 15 minutes per game. I mean, roughly, it can be five minutes. Some of them can be I think 15 minutes is on the outside, to be honest. It was designed by Johanna Sick and from Pegasus Spieler. And if you know anything about Micro Macro Crime City, it is in in effect a cooperative game of Where's Wally, where you have one huge black and white map of a city that is will go out and cover most of your of a decent sized gaming table and it's got quite detailed pictures of the life within this city and the buildings and the vehicles and the people but they're all anthropomorphized animals actually almost all of them i think and they're just going about doing their business and when you look at it all it's all a big jumble it's all a big oh, okay there's so much going on i can't make any sense out of this there are a bunch of cases within the box again but very simple ones. And then the cases, again, start easier and work through to being harder, although never really get that tricky. And they say, uh, such and such happened in this area of the board. Can you find whatever it might be? And oh, here is a murdered body, for example. Right, here's the next question. You found that here's the next thing we want to find. And what you'll see is that out of this jumble of what's going on, it's showing you the people within the city in different time frames. And as they interact, it's not all a snap of one moment in time. It, you can follow people backwards, and you can follow them forwards, and you can follow them through the city. And they'll get on the subway, the U-Bahn, and they'll pop up at the next station. And then they'll move along, and they'll go to a certain shop. And then they'll come around the corner, and they'll meet someone unexpected. You'll be like, oh, what well, they do meeting that person. And it's about following them through time through this static map to answer the questions about oh well how did they get away from this area what different vehicles have they used why did they meet up with a certain person well now the protagonist you have been following they have to follow the person that they did meet up with what do they do before this and what do they do after this in this like i say very detailed very big map and there's some intrigue and some revelations and you're like oh i thought that was a happy couple but lo and behold look before this what look what was going on it's all been a lie this thing i've been believing for the last three minutes because each individual case doesn't take very long there are some questions which require deduction so you're not just going to get told and shown every single uh, answer you're gonna have to go oh well that was that and that was that so if we tied that together logically that would make sense and that may well be your answer just flip over the card to find out the answer certain hints in the longer cases are left to, to, to remind you of certain things you're just trying to find sort of a broad grid coordinate early on just to find things so it's not too tricky there's lots to see there's lots to do 
Is it a game or an activity? Probably for someone else to answer, not me. But it is quite a good time. I would say that with our family, it's something very light that we get out and have a quick, like, oh, should we do a quick micro macro? Yeah, here we go, a couple of these. And it's not holding our attention for very long. Probably pitched a bit lower in age than ours, as long as you don't mind them looking at anthropomorphized and that's easy to say, uh, dead animals and stuff. So not for tiny, tiny kids, I guess. I can see the appeal of it. I think it's a really nice product. I think it's a really nice idea. I think it's been done quite well. I think there's enough thinking and enough to do there that you're not getting bored. I will say the map is huge, so that if you're in one corner and really details in the other corner, I'm not too sure you're going to be involved all the time. But to be honest, I kind of sat there just looking at what was on the <laughs> on the map and sort of looking at notice details myself. I didn't mind if it was in the far corner. And then when suddenly they went, oh, what's that? And it, maybe if people couldn't find the answer, then you could lean over and look a bit closer. And we're all just sharing a good time. So I, I think it's a really nice product would i be fast if i had never played it not really do i begrudge playing it certainly not do i understand that it's got a really popular place in the market absolutely and uh, long may this sort of innovation continue because i know it, it's very cynical to say it's just where's wally it is just where's wally but they've they've come up with a good way of making it a group activity and not just all of us gathered around like a, what did i get i got where's chewy the book for Christmas like this year or last year. And we all round an A4 book, you know, trying to find Chewy and R2-D2 and stuff, which was cool. Well, this way sort of structures it so that we're going the following. And there's more to it because of that, like I say, that time factor. So Micro Macro Crime City, I had to have a look just because of the fuss and I can understand it completely. Marvel Champions. Let's talk about that again because I haven't talked about it for just a tiny while. It's a one to four player game. I think probably you want at the lower end of that play count. That's just me. 2019, around 90 minutes per mission. It's from FFG, Michael Boggs, Nate French, and Kale's Grace. And Caleb Grace, sorry. And it is one of their living car games. And if you've listened for a while, you'll know I love talking about living car games. It's Marvel-based, obviously. It's where you have a deck that you are a hero, and then you have a scenario against a particular villain, and you're going to go through your deck trying to play out support uh, to set you up for later and upgrades to your character, which may or may not be more important to many your character is, and then allies who can attack and defend for you and act as meat shields. You're trying to keep your health above zero, while with preferably with other heroes, I find, even if you're playing solo, I tend to two-hand it. I tend to do that most cops anyway. But I with other heroes it's much more fun you're going against this villain who has got their own agenda you're trying to stop them from getting to the end of their agenda be it one two three four phases long whatever it is and also you're trying to reduce their hit points to zero at least twice usually twice uh, in order to defeat them because you'll beat them once and they'll come back stronger than you could ever have imagined like all co-op living card games is swingy but marvel champions is particularly swingy and not just because spider-man's in it it hinges on moments and cards coming out at certain times and that is one of the main things about it i find that games can just absolutely fly through to a certain point not against the much harder villains like ultron i find very difficult to defeat he's one of the first ones but a lot of games you can swing through it easy peasy but other times suddenly it can really fall apart quickly because a certain combination of cards has come out and you haven't drawn the right things in your hand and suddenly uh uh-oh we've gone from controlling this to actually being in big trouble and one of the things i find is actually the very first scenario the rhino one rhino is easy to beat but he's got a very low threshold of what he's got to do in order to beat you 
and suddenly that can like pile out of control and i can understand people feeling not in control completely of this game one of my concerns when i discussed it previously when it first came out were the deck building options so for each hero they have their own 15 cards that go into their deck their deck must be at least 40 cards thick there are some neutral cards which you're going to want to have in there but also then you choose one of four aspects for most heroes and there are options within some of them that bend that idea but for most heroes you choose one of four aspects be it aggression so you're going to be going high high damage or protection so you're going to try and not take as much damage away control things uh, and uh the others and you're going to add cards from that particular aspect into your deck building when i first reviewed this and it was first out i taught a few people the deck building aspect was limited we're down the line now where there have been scenario packs of more villains, there have been campaign boxes come out, third one's about to come out involving Thanos, and there are many more options for deck building, which for me is when I then start really getting into an LCG, because I want to have some control over my experience. I'm not an elite deck builder, I'm not very good at it, which is why Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings too hard, because you really need to build your deck very well in this. In Marvel, there's enough leeway that you can go with an idea and just roll with it, and you can come up with a viable deck that will do okay, especially if you can combine it with another deck that has sort of a, a complementary idea. Or they can work off each other, and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, and I, that's kind of where I go with my deck building. I'm not there optimizing everything. Some of the newer heroes their heroes guide the deck building process with their 15 cards and especially with their special powers because each hero has got an alter ego hero side and they have powers on either side of it of how they bend the rules they really guide how to build your deck and they take out some of the innovation of that or some of your own creativity and how you might want to build your deck which is fine it might be happening a little bit too much recently Gamora, I think, is kind of a, one of the egregious ones where she basically gets huge bonuses for paying events, and events are one-off cards. So someone like Iron Man wants to get out all his upgrades so that when he's got his whole suit out, he's super powerful. But Gamora doesn't really want that. She wants events to be playing one-off, 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 and it's great, and it makes it really fun to play, and she can be really powerful. But it guides how you build the deck because you want to just put loads of events in there. And again, like I say, not a nice idea. I just don't want to see every hero tell me this is really how you need to build the deck to go around this hero and have those 15 cards just tell you here you go here's how to play but the whole deck building has definitely improved uh, why is it coming up now well i thought i'd revisit it i didn't praise it that much in the beginning i said it was good but it wasn't one of my favorite lcgs i've played with more heroes obviously uh not all of them i've got them all but no i don't have that that much time to play it i've played against several scenarios and what we did is we played our first campaign now we played the rise of the red skull campaign and we did it over tabletop simulator which is my first experience really of playing a lot with tabletop simulator and what an incredible and awful tool that is it's incredible because there's so much that can be done within that program and very clever people can set up these amazing things so you can play all off marvel champions in tabletop simulator people have put all the cards in and all the even the hit point dials and the player mats and and everything that was in there however i literally couldn't set up a game of it because in making it so flexible that you can have all these incredible options it's hard you have to download certain mods into steam 
which you then have to find within Tabletop Simulator and then create a room with the certain mods in it and then unpack all the mods and then find all the things in there and pull them in. And then you have to learn all the controls that go with everything and, and how it is that you put decks together and how you can... And I mean, I'm at a stage now where I can flip a card, I can shuffle a deck, I can move tokens around. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm functional, but I still need this Lloyd, uh, who's been on the podcast ages ago, a close friend of mine, and he basically sets everything up. He's been playing a lot of tabletop simulators. One of the X-wing players we sometimes mention, who's very good at that, and then that's where the X-wing community went during lockdown to play in TTS, which makes a lot of sense. So we've been playing together through these games and having loads and loads of fun doing it. But honestly, unless he was there to guide my hand, I wouldn't be able to do this at all. I'm just functional. Anyway, that's tabletop simulator. In the Rise of the Red Skull campaign, what you've got is five linked stories and scenarios whereby things that you do in scenario one, two, or three may come out in scenario five. If you took a long time defeating one uh, villain, the amount of turns you took is going to affect you later on and make a certain scenario harder. Or there may be captured heroes that you're trying to rescue. If you get to the point where you didn't rescue them, that's going to harm you later. This is really where the swinginess of Marvel Champions multiplies on top of itself. Because that game against uh, Absorbing Man is, whereby the number of turns you take to defeat him is going to affect you later on, can go really well. And with exactly the same decks and the same players, it can go really badly. And you could take a lot of turns to defeat him, and then that's going to affect you later on. And you have very little control in that over each game. When you're making decisions, and when you're building your deck in Marvel Champions, you're just doing probabilities. This deck, over 100 games, would deal with this better than this other deck, these other options I can take. When I'm playing cards out of my hand, the probabilities are that playing these cards now and do this to set myself up will help me later on, but it's only a probability. It might end up that, no, I should have played these other cards in my hand. There's no way of knowing. And that's exciting. And for me, within this comic book theme, that works. But over a campaign, yeah, you have to really be aware that we there's a thing there where you try to rescue uh, heroes. The card that would have brought the captured heroes into play never even came into play. So we literally couldn't rescue the heroes. It went so well that we destroyed the villain before we had any chance to rescue anyone, which was kind of good because we were done in about four turns. We are like, great, we did great there. Yeah, but we never got near those. Oh, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder if we should have. And yeah, there you go. It's I've had loads of fun doing it. It feels like an accomplishment. We went through it. We won every single scenario first time through the campaign. I think we happened to have hit upon, upon two decks that worked well. I've built this Spider-Man deck. That, uh, Spider-Man's great. He's got the swinging web kick that does eight damage in one go, which is just incredible. And um, he's very, very good at managing the threat so that the villain is not accelerating. And these side schemes come out that make the game harder. He just plucks the threat off them with this deck I've built, a yellow deck, and, and we keep it under control. While Lloyd was Hawkeye, he was a real glass cannon, but was just popping out loads of damage. I think we got lucky in our combos but anyway overall marvel champions having played it more done more deck building i imagine i will revisit again as i go through and, and play the next campaign and, and we move onwards i've got the guys of galaxy campaign like i said the thanos one's coming really i'm just a slave to the theme and the fact that it's marvel means that all these sort of swings and sudden changes i say oh that's great that's like being in a comic book in terms of objectively about a game 
Arkham Horror is so much more LCG than this game. It just is just a more balanced experience. It's more strategic. It's more varied. It's got so much going on. But I love Marvel, so therefore I'm still really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying playing on a TTS as long as my hand is held. So Marvel Champions, uh, it's probably gone up a bit in my estimation just for the fact that there's more cards available and more variety. It's still not a great LCG. So there you go. Okay. This is the game I brought into review instead of Destinies. And we all know Destinies is like a big release and it's a big experience, a story game. This is Sprawlopolis. This is not of the same <laughs> the same sort of level. Okay, it's a 2018 game. It says one to four player. I think it's one to two player game, really. Solo game, really, but two player t- works perfectly. It's 15 minutes per game. It's from Buttonshy Games. It's designed by Danny Devine, Paul Kluka, and Stephen Aramini. And... I don't know if anyone's going to remember this, but 18 months ago, I reviewed a Circle of Wagons. It was over a time when, before lockdown, went away on holiday to Iceland, myself and Rachel, and we'd been in pubs a couple of times, and I had this little tiny game that we pulled out. And Circle of Wagons is a competitive, we play a two-player game, well, that is a two-player game only, 20 minutes long, with varied scoring, with a deck of 18 cards, where you pull three out, and they set how you're going to score points during this game. I mean, there's a base scoring of sort of putting together certain areas, but they're the varied scoring, and they're very important to how you score, so that the scoring conditions in each game are different. This is a circle of the wagons, right? And then you're going to, in circle of the wagons, draft cards from a circle, and you're going to put them into play in your own tableau, and at the end you're going to score it. It doesn't take very long. Great. What I didn't know at the time, although I think I mentioned it because people have mentioned it to me, was that circle of wagons was basically a variant of Sprawlopolis, with Sprawlopolis being a cooperative rather than competitive and it being a hand management rather than a drafting game, but having the same varied scoring, the same pattern building, where you put together, in this case, it's various city zones. They don't have the symbols on that in Circle of Wagons have. Circle of Wagons is slightly more complicated than that nature. However, what they do have is roads, which you're going to need to manage because you're doing a cooperative score together and the more roads you have in play, the more points you're going to lose and you're trying to follow the three scoring things that are set out by flipping over three cards at the beginning of the game, which tell you, oh, every park that's on the outside of the city is going to cost you a point. Uh, every, I don't know, industrial zone that are a kitty corner to each other is going to score your extra points. Whatever it might, how it wants you to build the pattern, it will tell you that way. And then between you, you've got a hand of three cards and you play one card and hand two to the other player draws a card and draw a card and draw a card. So you're always picking from three cards until right at the end of the game in order to build up the city together. Scoring is really, really tight. There's absolutely a range of scores you can get to. There's a limited high score with each combination of these scorings because when they ask you to do something, you're like, oh, there's only so many ways I can do that because the patterns on the cards are set and there is one of each city zone, each of the cards. The fact that you can overbuild cards is very important it's something you have to learn as you play as you're doing it together one or two of you allegedly four not four um that we can overbuild each other and we can think and you do start to get better at the game and you need to because it's pretty hard we have played 10 games of it we are starting to be win or be close we don't often lose by a lot now against the the score that we're attempting to get to it's challenge you're chatting together as you play. We're laughing. You're applauding each other's bright ideas. As you can know, I played this mostly two-player. So from Rachel, it fits inside a sort of a train ticket wallet size. It's not even a wallet size game. It's like a train ticket wallet. It's tiny. You can slip it in your pocket, take it anywhere. It suits us absolutely perfectly. 
Sprawlopolis, I mean, I love Circle of Wagons. Circle of Wagons, if we want to play against each other. Sprawlopolis, if we want to play with each other. Thank you for the recommendation, everyone. As soon as I mention Circle of Wagons, people start to say it to me. You're right. I love it. It's a great little game. I picked it up on the Kickstarter at the same time, I got Agropolis, which is another variant on Sprawlopolis, and the expansions would add to both of them and also combine both of them. So as well as hearing about Marvel Champions, you're probably likely to hear more about these button-shy games as the months go by. But Sprawlopolis is a lovely game, a great one to choose. Okay, the next game, this is a, a deeper, heavier one. This is Manhattan Project Energy Empire. It's a 2016 game, one to five players for 90 minutes from Minion Games and designed by Luke Laurie. There's a name that should possibly ring some bells. A rising star with dwellings of Elder Vale and Whistle Mountain, amongst others, making big splashes in the last 12 months. This is one he had out five years ago. And Tom Jolly, who is a name that's familiar to me, but I did have to go and look on BG to see what games he designed. And, and he's sort of been designer for a long time. And he's designed a lot of games that you'd have heard of. One of his I particularly like is the battle for Rokugan, which is sort of an area control uh, troops on the map game, which came out in the world of uh, Legend of Five Rings, is it? The FFG thing? Anyway, I'll review that another time, maybe. I think I already have once. And uh, so it's two brains come together here both with a pedigree although Luke's has been established since this came out maybe some more eyes will be drawn to it anyway what drew it to me was Sean got it Sean played it Sean liked it and he said Ronan you need to play Manhattan Project Energy Empire and he brought it over and taught us and we played it subsequently to be honest the reason I hadn't looked at Manhattan Project Energy Empire is because the Manhattan Project for me the intellectual property got washed out and they rinsed Manhattan Project with expansions that I wasn't sure is Manhattan Project this Manhattan Project that Manhattan Project this and then you have games also which are Manhattan Project this Manhattan Project that Chain Reaction Energy Empire whatever it might be I got confused and I kind of checked out a little bit so this was just another thing called Manhattan Project that came out around that time five years ago I, I didn't know what it was so that's why I never looked at it what is it is that it's a thinky pacey tableau builder in which you're building up these structures you're generating energy over the course of the game and with that energy in your workers you're building up this infrastructure of sort of an, a, a nation's energy if you like it's very abstracted though it's tableaus of cards of three different types and you're looking to use those resources and energy in order to score points in various ways in the, the game it's a euro at the same time you're looking to avoid getting pollution so you are a nation, you have a starting setup, as well as having a start setup of things you've got. It also gives you a unique way in which you can go up the UN track, which is not really the UN track at all. It's just a unique way for you to score points. It'll say you need plastic and this and that. You need to have gold and this and that, or gold money and this and that, in order to move up the UN track, which is one of the main ways to score points. Also, you start workers and some energy. And on each turn, you're either going to generate energy, which we'll come back to, or you're going to place a worker out onto the board. A board is split into three sections. And once you place the worker out onto the board in one of the three sections, you are then going to be able to operate the structures that you have already built off that type. So clearly you can build structures. Yes, one of the places you can go to each of the areas is there's a market of three cards. When one's taken, they'll slide left and become cheaper. And you can take a card and build it. It will have a cost and then it will have an effect. 
there are other things you can do and each area is slightly themed so the right hand side is commercial buildings and also commercial actions in which you can get money get more money and everyone else gets some money you convert things into money things like that and those sort of buildings will be like banks again to give you an income or they'll be able to you be able to pay money for the resources you get access to a market so if I place as my initial action into the commercial side of the main board, I can then operate my commercial structures. The way I do that is with my workers and with energy that I have generated and I still got left over. The other thing is about going onto the board where there is a worker already. You can't go there just a worker. You must make a stack that's taller than the worker. So yours would have to be at least a worker with one energy stacked beneath it. You could stack it with more. And why would you want to do that? Because whenever you're going into an area, you must have the tallest stack. So if I really wanted to block off an area, I could put in a worker and four energy underneath it and go like, yeah, no one's going there. Be a bit mean, but you could do it if you wanted to. So when you go out to these these sections of the board, you can gain structures or you can gain other resources like plastic and steel and oil and money, or you can use those things in order to, for example, draw achievements or get more workers. The other thing you can do is you can generate electricity. Now, what you do is during the course of the game, you can buy these dice and these dice will come over and they're of different types of energy. So you can get clean ones that are uh, geothermal energy or wind energy, or you can get dirtier ones like coal energy your nuclear energy and the reason you're worried about that is for certain structures you build and for when you generate energy and roll dice you can generate pollution and pollution will come onto a little grid on your board and it's always bad now if you are rolling with those clean dice you basically you only look at the highest result on your dice and if that's got pollution you get pollution if it hasn't you don't pollution going on that grid because even if you don't get a pollution from your dice roll, the pollution, whether you get it or not, comes off the board and there's stacks for each of six sort of eras, if you like. And at the end, once all the pollution has gone for an era, a global event will happen. The first thing of each of these global events is you're going to score points for areas of your board that have not been polluted. So you're going to want to keep on top of that because someone could get slightly ahead. The first three events that will happen are going to be decent and they're going to give you chances to do something. The last three will be bad because the world is becoming more polluted and you can start getting hit by having too much pollution or too much dirty energy as you go through the game. The other reason I said it basically is all around getting resources and converting them and getting to the resources that you need to run your cards or to do your UN is because once we get through those six areas and the last bit of pollution is gone we're going to look at how you have scored the most points and the way you score points are for your structures that you've built how far you've got up on this UN track those dice that you're buying during the game in order to generate energy to have more energy on hand to generate actions and be able to go out on the main board the more dice you have, the more points you're going to get. So you want to get those. Also, there are ways from the main board to get achievements. When you get achievements, you draw three and you keep one. And they will slightly guide you what you want to do. They might say, uh, of all the different unique resources in the game, for each one, you have at least one off, you get one point. Or they might say, uh, for a certain amount of money you have left over, you can get points for that. So you might buy more commercial buildings in order to have more money at the end of the game to trigger off on your achievement. So hopefully your UN requirement requires you to have money as well. So you're really going to go down that strategy. And it guides you in certain ways as to what you want to do. The whole thing is about prioritizing what resources you get, what you need, and what you can use. About the structure market will wipe during these global events, by the way. And it's about timing which ones to take and which ones are going to allow you to continue progressing but not using up the resources you need for other things. So if I need plastic to go on the UN, do I want too many buildings that are going to use plastic to run? Because resources are actually quite tight and it doesn't feel like it's going to be. 
But as you get more and more powerful, more and more workers and more and more energy and more and more structures, you actually want to do more and more on each turn. But you can't because there's only so much stuff you could possibly have at any time. And you end up having this economy whereby the more you have, the more you spend. And in the end, you are getting points all the time, but then you're starting to prioritize. Oh, do you know what? Maybe I shouldn't run that structure because as much as it's giving me something good, I might need that oil for something else over here where I could use it. And then you start getting pulled between the three different areas of the board. Let's say, as you said earlier, I was going for a heavy money strategy. But what if suddenly I start getting pulled towards the science end of the board? Because actually, if I do that, I can start clearing this pollution. And I'm not just constantly going back to the commercial area because you can only go to each area once. Like, And you're looking at it going, whoa. And suddenly you find yourself fighting with yourself because I had such a good plan. And each time you generate, you stop and you say, right, what is my plan for the whole next three or four turns? What am I going to do? What buildings am I going to buy? How are they going to integrate into this chain that I've got running? And how is that going to actually get me somewhere to score in points? Because scoring points is actually the hardest thing to do. And it's the hardest thing to focus on while you're thinking about all these other things. And while all that's going on, you're not too concerned about what the other players are doing because they're running their own little structure and tableau and chains. But that's not such an issue because turns are really quick and each action is very simple to see. You place your work or your work plus energy and it'll just be do this and that. Okay, now I run my structures. I do this, this, that, that and that. And I get two of them and I put one of those back and I take two of these. And it's all very clear. The iconography is very good and how each action works is very clear for everyone to see. And you're not entirely bothered exactly what actions the other players are doing. And that might be a plus or a minus for you. For Manhattan Project Energy Empire, I was going to say it's an overlooked little gem, but then I checked. It's actually ranked number 237 on Board Game Geek, and that really surprised me. What it's got is a very high average rating of 7.8, but also 5,000 rankings, which is also quite surprising. I was, I thought it would be fewer, honestly. I thought this one had been overlooked, but actually what I think it is is a sleeper hit. Because I just think it's been gathering momentum over these five years. And I think with the rise of Loot Lorry, people are going to look at it again. And I actually think that if they rebranded this away from Manhattan Project, they wouldn't necessarily need to retheme it. You can still be around energy, but it just doesn't have to have that Manhattan Project. The, the, the brand doesn't really work. It's absolutely nothing to do with the race to get a nuclear weapon, which is what Manhattan Project obviously was themed around. So I think a quick rebrand, a little like nudge of who the designers are, the backing it's got already, I think the Energy Empire on a re-release could do very, very well because it's a strong Euro, plays quickly, quick turns. You've got your own puzzle going on and it certainly doesn't outlast its welcome. So... Manhattan Project, Energy Empire. Thank you, Sean. That is a very decent game. Okay, a couple more to go. They're replay, so we'll go through them quickly. Nation's Dice plus the Unrest expansion. Nation's Dice first came out in 2014. One to four players, 20 minutes long from lordpellet.fi and designed by Rustin Hakansen. If you weren't around in 2013, you might not be aware that Nation's was a big deal it was a civ game when we were kind of starved of new ideas for civ games it's card driven it's a bit epic there's a lot going on and it's still ranked number 162 on bgg so it's still kind of one of those games that for its time from eight years ago has stuck around in the sort of a pillar for people who were playing games back then i would suggest certainly euros when it was announced that there was a 20 minute dice version of nations coming out it seemed like a bit of a stretch to have a filler game that was in any way going to capture the nature of nations itself well they did do it 
and I've had it since it came out in 2014 and I bought the expansion but I haven't played it in a long time it was six years in fact 2015 is the last time I played this game but there were murmurings of a reprint or even a further expansion coming out for Nations of Dice game and I think that just put it in my head and one day we're sitting around and I said come on let's give this a go we haven't played this in ages in the game itself, you are a particular nation, especially with the expansion, the nations are different. And you start off with five structures usually, although again, when you use the expansion, there are very numbers of structures. And they each give you dice. And you start with these basic white dice that just have one or two symbols on each side. And you roll them at the beginning of each of four different rounds. When you look at your roll, you then decide what you're going to do with it. There is a board available, and on that board, there are going to be nine or 12 available different things which you can purchase. You can usually spend gold from your dice rolls or chits you have acquired. You start with a certain number of chits, depending on what nation you are. You can get more of them during the game. They are just one-offs that never change. They're exactly the same as other dice. They just don't change. You have the same thing again and again from round to round. So most of you are spending gold to get these tiles or swords for particular types of ones. But either way, you're going to be drafting them from this board. And as it goes through the round, they're basic ones. And then in era two, they're a bit more complicated than three. And then in four, they all end up basically scoring you points. In order to get these things, there are buildings Buildings will always cost you money. When these tiles are laid out, they're just laid out randomly. Some are on level one, some are on two, some are on three. The ones on one cost fewer than the ones on three, as in the ones on one cost one money. When you get buildings, you will, you will replace one of your structures already on your board, and you will then replace dice. So if I had a building that has got one dice on it, one white dice, and I cover it over with a building that's got a blue dice and a white dice, I will gain a blue dice. I actually gain the white dice and can throw away use white dice, but let's not get into that. Or I could cover up a building with one white dice with the one that gives me two red dice. I chuck that one white dice away, one die away, and I get two red dice. Now, I'm talking about different colours because the different colours have got different biases towards what you are likely to roll on them. For example, the blue ones are going to give you stones or books. We'll come to what they do. The red ones are going to give you swords. And swords will affect, again, how you can get them tiles and then also different mechanics in the game. And it sounds like it might be getting complicated. It's not. It's a 20-minute game. But you just have to be aware of what the different ones are. For example, the yellow dice, yellow, more money on there, or food. Okay, what do we want all that stuff for? There are wonders. You buy wonders with money. They go into a slot. They're not built yet. They require stone that I mentioned that you get off those blue dice or just your standard white dice or chits. And once you take a turn then to spend stone, you build the wonder. The wonder is then going to give you a benefit. And that benefit is going to be points at the end of the game and also usually some sort of a chit. Now, the chits might be a money to spend or a stone for more wonders or a sword to boost your military. Or it could be another reroll token because one of the things you do on your turn rather than spend anything to get tiles is to reroll all your dice that you choose to reroll. But those rerolls are very limited. You can use money to buy advisors and advisors, you've only got a slot for one at a time, but they will give you chits. And again, towards the end of the game, they'll score you points. You can use swords to get yourself colonies. Now, that's one of the ways you're going to use swords. And it's the only way you actually spend them before the end of the round. And these colonies, again, will get you points so they'll get you chits and again you'll slowly boost yourself getting more dice getting more chits and slowly hopefully getting slightly more powerful as we go throughout the game once everyone has stopped doing their actions they've spent all their dice spent all their chits that they want to do they've stopped and then we're going to do a quick bit of admin at the end of each round these books I've been talking about on the blue dice, you get with chits, whatever. You add them to your book score and you score points for everyone who's behind you has got less culture than you. That's what these books are for. 
Then there's a famine. Now, these are all mechanisms from the base nations game, but they've been very much deconstructed right down and simplified. A famine just says, do you have this much food left over? And again, it's going to be from your yellow dice, your white dice, or from your chits. If you have as much as it wants, you're going to score a load of points. As you get through the eras, a load of points for having to be able to meet these famine conditions. The swords you have not spent to conquer colonies are then added up. Whoever's got the most is going to be able to draft first next round, second most, second, and so on. So the player order is it switches around. And then there's a war in which, again, the same swords that you haven't spent, because you only spend them for colonies, if you've got enough swords, similar to famine, you're going to score a certain number of points. That's as simple as it is. You roll... You prioritise, you get in tiles to make yourself better, especially buildings in order to get better dice, and you go on and you see if you're going to go for famine, or you're going to go for books, or you go for war, or somehow you're good enough to go for all of them. Now, why do I say buildings is so important? Because buildings always cost money. Buildings are how you upgrade your dice. Upgrading your dice is very important because if you fall behind over the course of the game, you're going to really struggle, and especially if you don't get boosted yellow dice or chits that give you more gold because you then cannot continually improve yourself and you cannot choose what dice you want to do and it's very hard to strategize the one problem i've ever found nations the dice game is that if you start off without money and you can't get hold of money and you haven't got money generating things you're going to be in trouble as much as you might want to think oh i'll just go for swords i have always found that a lack of gold is going to hamstring you at the beginning of the game and you will struggle really to catch up that frustration aside this is a good game it's quick and to be honest it kind of needs a bit of a reprint if you have a look at it maybe we see it in a board game cafe maybe see it on sale there's not that many copies around anymore but give it a little go because it's a bit thinkier than your usual 20 minute dice roller and it's a bit better than your usual 20 minute dice roller okay last one i'm going to roll in gameplay with the one thing that i backed during this period on kickstarter and it's isle of cats i'm always talking about isle of cats it's 2019 wonderful players 90 minutes frank west city of games it feels like a classic it already two years after it came out feels like an evergreen to us we are always playing it the double drafting aspect of the cats and the cards that drive your actions, as well as the spatial puzzle, the polyomino thing of fitting all your cats onto your ship, just blends beautifully for me. It feels like the interaction of the draft plus the solo game for your spatial puzzle is a lovely blend. We've been playing it again, and one of the reasons we were playing it again is because it was on crowdfunding. Now, it was on Kickstarter back in, I believe, May, and you could get the base game itself, and you can get a series of expansions. You can get the expansions with kittens in, that apparently, uh, when you're doing the draft of cats, it's most boots on your cards, but usually on basket cards, or sometimes you get just boot cards, it's going to go first in the draft. Now, with two players, that can be more important. But the more players you have, the less important it felt to be so far ahead in turn order. Because with more players, there's more cats available. And you can generally sort of think, oh, I'll be able to get hold of that one. I'll be able to get this one. There are also some cards that you take two cats at once, for example. So you can have, I keep hold of that and be like, right, boom, I need those two now. This, apparently, the kittens expansion, when you rolled it in, as well as having these kittens that you add to the board, which is going to help your score, also makes the boots become more important. So that addresses something that may have been like one of those things that are whoever takes the boots cards, because I don't. There's also beasts. That's a second expansion that's come out. A beast adds early game goals. For us, the other thing can be a bit of a sideshow is the lesson cards. Now, I don't know how everyone plays it, 
but lessons don't get picked that often in our games and it tends to be something you kind of either fall into or you don't and the public lessons everyone seems to be a bit like why would i put them out early because then everyone's going to go for them you'll be going for the same stuff i'm going for this suggests that the the beast is going to add early game goals that you can go towards and build towards so it might maybe bolster that idea of having something to differentiate your own scoring to the other players scoring maybe and the last sort of of the proper expansions is the event mode which brings um events but also different ways of scoring points in rounds two three four always wary of an event mode in any game tends to be that they tend to to help certain players and not others because it's by the nature of them that like oh this affects people who have got red cats or whatever well i've got those red cats you've got none so i'm in trouble i think that frank's a better designer than that i hope he is but the events one is the one that i'm least excited about ronan this is on kickstarter in may why are you telling me now i'm telling you now because i had to go and finish off my pledge manager today it's on game found and the pledges are open again so if you ever thought about getting into Isle of Cats or you've got Isle of Cats and you missed out on the expansions, I mention it because Isle of Cats is that damn good that I didn't want anyone to miss out on the chance to go back in, head to GameFound. You don't have to have pledged already. You can go on there. I'm pretty sure I checked this because I've already pledged, so I couldn't see properly, but then I logged out and I pretended like I wasn't me. It's very sneaky, I know, advanced. And it looked like you can just order the game and the expansions and there's a big box and stuff and whatever you want to get. Uh, there's also a roll and write game comes with it. I didn't order that. Don't tell anyone. Okay, good. But if ever you want to get an Isle of Cats, go to GameFi and have a look. It's a fabulous, fabulous game. And I just really wanted to take the chance to talk about it again because I love it. Okay, quickly, four new arrivals in the collection. And this is now... Oh, maybe a month or two ago. Ten Sons. One six player for Medieval Lords card game that looks like a more complex card game that claims to play in 45 minutes. Looks a bit nuts. It's about a geezer going out trying to shoot the sun down with his arrows. I mean, he manages it, so he wasn't that mad, but I don't know. It's got bidding in it to fight off monsters. You've got to build your own palace up. You get, in particular, god powers during it all the while while playing this card game. So there's a bit going on. I need to dig into it. I read the rule book. It didn't seem to be that complex to play, but there was lots to consider. Hmm. Could be awful, could be great. Don't know. That's Ten Sons. I've got Hadrian's Wall. I'm not the world's biggest Roll and Write fan. Yeah, that's why I didn't get the Isle of Cats Roll and Write. I don't, I don't like them. But anyway, this one allegedly is the one that's going to convert me. It's supposed to be combo-tastic. I'm told I'm going to get destroyed by Rachel because she's great at finding combinations in games and end up having turns that are 38 minutes long but score her 28 billion points. She's very good at doing that. I think I'm going to get crushed, but I got Adrian's Wall because, you know, everyone needs a crushing now and then. Vampire the Masquerade Rivals is a card game from Renegade Games that I got for Ellie and I to play this summer because I thought the theme was quite fun and I thought it'd be nice for us to have a game to really dig into over the summer. Turns out we've kind of been digging into something else, which I'll talk about in an episode or two's time. That's Bullet Heart. But Vampire the Masquerade Rivals, I've opened it up. The rule book is walls and walls and walls of text. Hasn't been a great impression on that. And also a couple of my cards are misprinted. So I need to go in contact with the Renegade to get that sorted. So not a great first impression. Let's see if the game's able to put it around via its gameplay. And the last game that came into my collection is The Initiative. Corey Knietzka, the brains and innovation and slight madness behind Fancy Flight Games for years. He started his own publisher and this is him designing and publishing his own game. First time. It's called The Initiative. It's bound to have innovation in there i think it's like a mix of a story escape room puzzle deduction 
I'm intrigued. I've got it. I've said we're going away with the family. I think I'm going to try and make the initiative the game of the holiday for us to all dig in and have a look at it. I better have some backups because I don't know what to expect. Right. That's it. That actually went way longer than I thought. I said at the beginning, this is going to be a really quick episode because it's old games. And then I just fell in love with the sound of my own voice again. Thank you. Again, my apologies. Again, hopefully, Sean, very shortly. It's all set up. We're ready to roll. Because there's lots of stuff going on at work and shifts are all over the place. So we are set up to do it. We hope it happens. Otherwise, you'll have to hear from me again. And no one wants that for fourth episode in a row. No, let's not do that. Okay. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Head to thedicetower.com for all your gaming goodness. And I will catch you next time. And don't forget, if you want to message us on the BGG forums or on Twitter or the gamepodcast at gmail.com, by all means, have a chat with me. And thank you very much. Music by E. Aaron. Boing.